All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today. Before I dive in, I want to remind you of what our senior pastor, Bob Merritt, talked about last weekend about the sacrifice that it will take for all of us to reach more people for Christ, specifically to put a permanent campus in the west suburbs of the Twin Cities. We have a financial goal for that. It would cost about $25 million to put a permanent campus in the west suburbs. And somebody told me this week that if 5,000 families committed $5,000 over two years, so that's $2,500 per year, that we would easily reach that goal. And you think about our church of over 20,000 people who attend, and so I want to ask you, could you be one of those 5,000 individuals or families? Now, some of you would say, yeah, I just can't. Financially, we're just not in a position where we're able to do that, and that's okay. Our goal is 100% participation. We want every single person here to feel the joy and the sense of ownership when you see God working. In fact, this week, I just got a card from a 10-year-old girl, and this is a girl that our family were friends with them, and so I know her personally. My wife was in tears when she was reading this note to me, but she wrote this. She said, Dear Jason, here is my tribute to Eaglebrook Church. Please give this money to the person that is setting the money aside to save up so they can build a church in Wyzetta. That's not me. I hope that my money can help build the Wyzetta Church and help make a seat for someone who needs it. And then in that note, there was $200 cash, which for a 10-year-old girl is the equivalent of like a million dollars, right? I mean, in adult years, that, that's, that's a lot of money for a 10-year-old girl. She had worked all fall at an apple orchard. She had saved up this money. Her brother even said, are you sure you want to give all of that? And she said, I've been saving up for something important like this. And it is important. People matter to God. People's souls and eternities, they matter to God. Their marriages, their kids, their families and legacies, all of those things, they matter to God. And so if you want to be a part of helping provide a seat for someone who could meet Jesus Christ and have their family changed, here's the way that you can participate in the one-by-one campaign. The first one is just stop by the table in your lobby. It says one-by-one. If you have any questions at all, you can stop up there. Second, uh, last weekend as you left, we handed out these cards one-by-one. If you want to fill one of these out and drop it in the mail to us, that's the second way that you can participate. And then the third way to participate, which is probably the most convenient and the one that most of you will do, is to go to eaglebrookchurch.com slash one by one. And there's step by step that will just walk you through it right there. But our hope is that every single one of us can be a part of this. One thing to ask you, if you are planning on contributing, could you do so before November is out? We would really like all the commitments in before the end of November so that we have an idea of where we're going. So take this week, pray about it, ask God, talk to your spouse, and then uh, make that decision. All right, today we are beginning a new series. It's called Anchor Deep. And years ago, author Max Lucado told a story about his houseboat in Miami. He was trying to tie it down before Hurricane David hit. But he had just gotten this houseboat like three months before, and so he had no idea what he was doing. So he's tying it down to trees and the dock and anything he can find when this old sailor walks by him, sees what he's doing and goes, tie her down to land and you'll regret it. He said that hurricane is going to eat up those trees. Your only hope is to put four anchors 
in four different locations and anchor deep. It's good advice. Whenever you're in a storm, the question is, how deep is your anchor? That's true for hurricanes, and it's true for the storms that we face in life as well. No need to raise any hands, but how many of us here today who are attending online or at one of our campuses, you feel like you're in a storm? You just do. You've been through a painful breakup, and it's just lingering with you, and you're just going through a storm. Maybe there was an unexpected death, and you didn't see that coming. And now your life has been completely altered, and you will look back on the year of 2018 and go, that was a storm. Maybe for you it's a financial storm where the budget's not working out or an investment failed. Maybe it's a relational storm where there's conflict or criticism that you're dealing with in your life. But whenever you're going through a storm, the question is, how deep is your anchor? As we were talking about this series last spring, I was telling people that oftentimes I have one verse from the Bible that I've memorized for various storms that I might go through. Some people read the Bible for information, and that's okay. But look what the Bible itself says. It says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible is a weapon. A sword is a weapon. The Bible isn't just a collection of sayings that you put on a coffee cup or some decorative piece in your house. It's something that you use to fight against. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did he respond to Satan's temptations? Every time he quoted a verse from the Bible. When the storms hit, when you get tired or weak or anxious or you're in trouble in some way, do you have a couple go-to verses from the Bible that will anchor your soul and remind you of the promises of God? I'm telling you, repeating one verse over and over again is sometimes all that it takes. And so in this series, we're going to give you five anchor verses for five different storms that you might be facing in your life. Today's message is titled, When I Feel Like Quitting. When you feel like quitting, how do you anchor deep? On August 31st of 2013, a woman named Diana Nyad swam 110 miles from Cuba to the coast of Florida. She had actually attempted this swim four times previously. The first one was when she was 28 years old. But strong winds blew her off course and she was forced to quit. 33 years later, not one year later, not two years, 33 years later, she attempted this swim again at the age of 61. But this time an asthma attack forced her to quit. Three months later, she attempted this swim for a third time, but this time she was stung so badly by a box jellyfish on her neck and her forearm that she went into respiratory distress. Look at the person next to you and go, we ain't doing that. <laughs> I don't care if it's a world record. I don't care if you're like, no one's ever swam this before. Who cares? If you get bit by a box jellyfish, I'm out. Okay, I'm out. It is the deadliest poison on planet Earth. 90% of people who are stung by one die instantly. In Nyad's case, when she was stung by this box jellyfish, 
her doctor, who was in the boat next to her, jumped in to administer medicine to her. And then he got bit. So both of them are in the water just screaming their heads off, but Nyad refused to get out of the water. She only got out the next day when she was stung again. One year later, at the age of 63, she attempted this swim for a fourth time, but one massive storm and nine box jellyfish stings later, she was forced to quit. One year later, at the age of 64, she attempted this swim for a fifth time. I want you to see a local news story about this. Take a look. Right now, a 64-year-old U.S. swimmer is heading to Florida. It's Diana Nyad's final attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida, all the way from Cuba to Florida. She expects to make the 110-mile swim in about 80 hours. She'll have a support team with her. If Nyad succeeds, she will become the record holder for the longest unassisted open ocean swim. I hope next time I see you, it'll be to celebrate instead of to say, oh, here we go again. <laughs> this is the last time. It's the last time, 100%. This is the end of the journey, as they say. Wow, Nyad has tried to make the swim for the past two years, suffering from exhaustion and dangerous jellyfish encounters. This time around, Nyad will be wearing a protective mask and a prosthetic mouthpiece to help keep the jellyfish away, but that does not protect against sharks. That's terrifying. Good luck to her. I love the last part. It's like she's just going off script. She just realizes, wait a minute, that doesn't protect against sharks, that's terrifying. But on her fifth try, Diana Nyad became the first person to swim from Cuba to the coast of Florida. It was 110 miles, the only person ever to do so not using a shark cage. Here's what Nyad had to say after. She said, I remember coming out of the water and seeing the faces of the crowd on the beach just so emotionally wrought. I realized afterwards that they weren't weeping because somebody set some sports record. They were weeping because they saw someone who refused to give up. And everyone has experiences like that. Whether it's fighting cancer or raising a difficult child or whatever. I want to ask you today, will you refuse to give up? When you feel like quitting, will you give it one more swim? See, we live in a culture right now that wants it now. We don't like to wait for anything. Amazon wasn't fast enough, so we got Amazon Prime, and then we're like, this is like two days to get here. And so we got Amazon now because we want it now. But all throughout the Bible, you see stories of men and women who had to endure. Noah took 120 years after when he started building the ark for it to actually rain. Abraham was promised a child by God, but that child was not born until 25 years later. The Israelites walked around the walls of Jericho seven times before they fell. Good thing they didn't get discouraged and quit after number six. You see, all throughout the Bible, we'll, we'll read about a, a genuine miracle. And then you read about the prediction or the promise of that miracle just a few verses earlier. So it gives the impression that, oh, it just it happened like that. But when you study it historically, you find that actually between those two verses on a piece of paper, there was 20 years of time that had elapsed. The suddenly 
only came after years of enduring. Ever felt like quitting before? Maybe you feel like that right now. Maybe there's something in your life where you just go, I can't keep doing this. This this relationship, this issue, this problem, this situation, I just, I cannot keep on like this. I just want to quit. Maybe you even feel that way about life. And I don't say that lightly because life can get to a point where you are so fatigued and you are so hopeless that you say, you know, I just, I just want to quit. If that's you here today, I want to speak the word of God into your life. And I want to say to you, do not quit. Do not quit. Endure. As long as you have breath, God is not done with you yet. Now, immediately after saying that, I want to qualify and say that there are times to quit. Not on life itself, but there are times to quit your job and take a different one. There are times if you're dating someone to end that relationship. If your boyfriend or girlfriend isn't following Christ, if they're not treating you well, or if they're addicted in some way, then that becomes a necessary ending. Even in a marriage, in situations of physical abuse, abandonment, so they've left, or having an affair. Those are the three, abuse, affair, or abandonment. It is even time to consider, should I continue in this marriage? Or should we at least separate from each other for a period of time? So there are times to quit. But is my fear that we are becoming a generation that quits too soon? That something isn't going our way, the first time doesn't work out, we fail a little bit, and we just go, yeah, that's it, I quit. You need to know today that your most significant accomplishments in life will oftentimes happen when you refused to quit. Why do people quit? Well, I was jotting some notes in my notebook this week, and I, I thought, you know, first of all, failure. If you fail at something, you'll go, you know what? I, I did that. I failed. Didn't make the team. Didn't get the job. They didn't like my idea. We've already done that. It didn't work. You tried. You failed. You will want to quit. Second one is no progress. I've told people before, but I hate assembling things. My least favorite thing to do in this entire world. So my arch enemy is Ikea. Because you get something from Ikea, and it's a box with like 100 pieces, and then there's one page of visual assembling instructions. So they don't even write anything on there. There's just a picture of some guy like going like this. And you're like, huh? I have vowed to my wife and to the Lord God that I will not buy furniture from Ikea. I'm not kidding you about that. Won't do it. Because I'll spend about a half hour, and I'll make no progress. And maybe that's how you feel in some area of your life. You've been dieting for six months and you get on the scale and you haven't lost any weight. Or you've started to work out and you're not seeing any definition or you go see a counselor. And then you get in the car afterwards and you get in the same old fight that you always get in and you just go, this isn't working. We're, we're not making any progress. You will want to quit. Unsolvable problems. I think the four most discouraging words in the English language are things will never change. My boss will never change. My situation will never change. My opportunity is never going to change. Our financial situation, our marriage, our kids, it's never going to change. If you feel that way, you'll want to quit. And the final one is just people. 
manipulative, negative, critical people will cause anyone to want to quit. Now, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Well, actually, it does. There's a verse in Hebrews 12, verse 1, that I have memorized, and when I feel like quitting, this is the verse that I go to, and I keep saying it over and over again to remind myself of this truth. I want to read the verse to you, but before I do, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So this is the first part of Hebrews chapter 1. This is before the anchor verse. Here's what the author writes. He says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Years ago, I ran a 10-mile race, and I hated training for it. It was so boring. I'm like, give me a ball to run after, and I can do that. But just running for no reason was so boring to me. And then I got to the actual race, and I loved it. What was the difference? It was the crowd. The crowd of people standing alongside with signs and cowbells. At one point, I was getting really tired. And this complete stranger looked at me and he goes, man, keep going, you're doing great. And I had everything to do within me to hold back from going, I love you, man. (laughs) Because the crowd was just encouraging me to continue to run this race. Question, does the crowd of people that you run with, do they encourage you? Do they build you up? Do they help you run the race that God has set before you? Or does the crowd of people that you spend time with, that you hang out with, do they pull you down and pull you away from God? I'll talk to people all the time, middle school students, high school students, college students particularly, even adults, and the problem in their life is the crowd that they're running with. It's the crowd that is pulling them away and discouraging them from running the race that God has for them. Who's your crowd? Next verse. He says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. Now, in the ancient times when this verse was written, they would participate in Olympic-like races. But when the men would run in those races, right before they ran, they would take off all their clothes. They would take off their robes, they'd take off their belt, their sandals, because you can imagine that running in a robe would would hinder your progress. Now, I don't anticipate I'm ever going to run naked in the future, okay? I I don't see myself being in a naked race. If I get to the end of my life and that's checked off, I will be very surprised, but If that ever happens, let me tell you something. I'm going to win. I'm not coming in second. I'm not coming in third. I don't know what the people behind me are going to be looking at. I'm looking at the finish line, okay? That's what my eyes are going to be on. And that's kind of the imagery that the author of Hebrews is giving here. He's saying strip off, put off everything that's going to hinder your progress and slow you down. What is that for you? What is it that's slowing you down right now, that's, that's hindering your progress in your relationship with God? I was reading a book by an author named Susie Larson, and it's called Fully Alive, and at the end of one of her chapters, she includes this prayer. And I thought this was so powerful. She said, Lord, show me what masters me and slows me down. That's a prayer. That's not just a, you know, thank you for this food. I pray we get to grandma's house safely. This is a prayer. 
Lord, would you show me what controls me? Would you show me what masters me and what's slowing me down? She goes on, she says, help me to lose my taste for that which weakens me and acquire a taste for that which strengthens me. What if you prayed a prayer like that this week? What if you said, God, would you help me to lose my taste for the things that are weakening me? Isn't it amazing how sometimes we have a desire to look at something, to eat something, to drink something, to inhale something, to do something that actually weakens us? And intellectually, we know this is going to slow me down. This is going to weaken me, but we want to do it anyway. What if you prayed, God, help me lose my taste for that and help me acquire a taste for that which strengthens me? Several years ago, my wife started buying me these Suja green drinks from Costco. And let me just read to you the ingredients in this thing. It's celery, cucumber, kale, collard greens, mint tea, ginger, spinach, spirulina, I don't even know what that is, chlorella, barley grass, and green chard. I don't know what green chard is, but that's got to be good for you, right? This is like a rabbit's dinner in a bottle, okay? That's what this is. The first time I drank one, I gagged, had the worst aftertaste. The second time I drank it, I made a face like this, and then my 10-year-old son had a friend over for dinner, and so I bet him and dared him he couldn't drink some of this. I'm like, drink, 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 you know, you can do it. But they come in a pack of six at Costco, and by the time I got to the sixth one, my taste buds had begun to change. You put one of these in the fridge, get it cold. It is so refreshing. I would drink one a day. That same principle can happen spiritually as well. You can begin to develop new spiritual taste buds. You say, I don't like reading the Bible. It's boring. Well, read it anyway. Read it until you get to that point of going, oh, God, you're speaking to me right now. And this is the guidance and the strength that I needed in my life. Some of you say, you know, I don't like worship music. Well, listen to it sometimes because you may get to the point of going, this is filling me up and God is speaking to me and strengthening me from this. What if you begin to pray, help me lose my taste for that which weakens me and help me acquire a taste for that which strengthens me. And this brings us to the anchor verse that I wanted to look at today. It's Hebrews 12 verse 1. I hope you will memorize this if you feel like quitting. He said, let us run with endurance the race that God has marked out for us. Let us run with what? Let us run with endurance the race that God has marked out for us. How do you do that? How do you run that race? Well, I just have one thought for you, and it's this. You can handle your now when you know what's next. You can handle your now. You can handle whatever situation you're in right now, whatever circumstance you're dealing with, when you know what's next. In fact, look at what the author of Hebrews says right after. He says, let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. He said, we do this. You're going, how do I do this? He said, well, we do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Here's how some of us are living our life right now. You're just like the, oh, I got all these problems in my life, and my boss just said this, and, and I didn't really like that email, and it's really bothered me, and then my kids did this, I'm sick of saying the same thing over and over again, I already told them not to do that, and then my spouse, they did this, and I told them, and why do they want to give me a hug once in a while? And you are just on your problems. You're just fixed on your problems. You've got to get your eyes off of your problems, and you've got to fix them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. David Clark, a professor at Bethel Seminary, was speaking to our staff recently, and he told a story about his son, Tyler. I went to college with Tyler, so I was interested in this, but Tyler lives out in Colorado, and he and some of his friends decided they were going to go elk hunting. So for five days, they were up in the mountains of Colorado, and they got stuck in a snowstorm. Five days of trudging around in snow up to their waist, they did not see a single elk. Meanwhile, back home, his wife got up one morning, drove to work, and a mile from their house, she shot this video. <laughs> they just keep coming here. A couple stragglers. You know, I, I saw that video and I thought, isn't that how some people are in life? They always think that the solution to their problems is going to be out there somewhere. What I'm looking for, it's out there. It's up in the mountains. It's on the beach. It's in a different marriage or relationship. It, it, what I'm looking for, it's, it's out there somewhere. I'll talk to people who are married and they'll go, oh, I'm just so sick of this. We don't love each other anymore. And he or she changed and this isn't working. And, and they think that the answer to their problems, it's out there. It's in a different relationship. And I want to ask you to consider what if what you're looking for is in the marriage that you are in? What if it's in the enduring what if you look back five years from now, 10 years from now, and you say, look at what we overcame together. Look at the example that that's going to give to our kids. When our kids feel like quitting, look at what we can tell them. Look at what we overcame and the legacy that we are going to leave with our life, that sometimes what you're looking for is in the enduring. It's in the circumstances and in the situation. He says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he says the next verse, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he was in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying to God the Father and he was saying, if it's possible at all, I don't want to go to the cross. Jesus did not want to experience that physical and spiritual pain that was about to be put upon him at that moment. It says he was sweating blood. And you may say, well, that's just some Bible thing, but scientists have found that this is possible. That you can get to such a point of this in your life that capillaries begin to burst and it comes out through your sweat glands and you will literally be sweating blood. That was Jesus. But Jesus endured the cross. Why? It was for the joy set before him. He knew that he could deal with the crucifixion, 
when nails would be pounded into his wrists and into his feet because he knew that a resurrection was coming. Jesus knew that he could deal with Friday when the skin would be ripped off of his back and his spine would be exposed. He knew that he could deal with Friday because he knew that Sunday was coming. When the stone would be rolled away and the tomb would be empty, it was for the joy set before him. It was for the joy of defeating death, the joy of paying the penalty for our sins and knowing that every single human being who wants to put their faith in Jesus Christ can have eternal life. It was for the joy set before him. Jesus could handle his now because he knew what was next. What is next for you? Well, for some of you, it's a new day. For some of you, there's a fresh start right around the corner. For some of you, there is a season of blessing and joy that you are about to enter into. Even in something like death, which would be maybe the worst thing you could say would happen to a person in this life. Even in death, your first conscious moment afterwards, if you are in Christ, will be with Jesus. And you'll be in a place of pure and perfect joy. There'll be no pain, there'll be no tears, there'll be no suffering. You can handle your now because you know what's next. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, let us not become weary in doing good. I'll talk to middle school students, high school students, college students sometimes, and they'll go, you know what, I'm just sick of being the good girl. I'm just gonna go sleep around with somebody. I'm just sick of being the good girl. I'm sick of being the good guy, the friend, the religious one. I'm sick of that. I'm just gonna go out and party and do something crazy. I am telling you, let us not become weary in doing good. For why? For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I was talking to a man recently and he was saying, you know, my life, I, I, I see the destination of where I wanna get to. And this was a very accomplished, successful, you know, moral human being. He said, I, I see where I wanna get to with God, but it's like I'm on this bridge. And he said, no matter how many steps I take, I don't seem to get any closer to the destination. And that's the definition of being weary, that you, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you work, you're not making progress. Other people are passing you. And I said to him, I said, you know, Christianity is so different because it's about grace. The message of Christianity is not, hey, figure out, build a bridge, and then walk across it. Figure it out. That's how some people build a company or something like that in life. But the message of Jesus Christ is not, hey, build the bridge and figure out a way to get to me. The message of Jesus Christ is, I'm gonna build a bridge to you. And if you need me to, I will walk across that bridge and I will pick you up and I will carry you to the other side. That's grace. How many of us today would say, you know what? I need God to come and just carry me across. I can't take another step. Marathon runners will tell you that by mile 18, they can't go. They're just in pain. Their mind is going crazy. Maybe today you're at mile 18. Even in your pain, 
even in that moment of going to bed upset and lonely, even when you've asked God and God hasn't answered your prayer, you need to endure. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Let us not grow weary in doing what is good. For why? At the proper time, you'll receive a harvest. To which I go, well, what's the proper time? Now, right? That's, that's the proper time. Because I don't like to wait. I was at Target a few weeks ago. I just had a couple items. I went to aisle four, and the woman had had all her items checked through. And then she started digging in her purse. And I don't know, it's like some people have a purse that goes to a different dimension. Because she was, I don't know where she was, but she was just down there for a while. And she finally came out with her checkbook. And she starts writing out this check. And I'm like, oh, it's 1985 in aisle number four. So I run over to aisle number six. And, and the guy in line has checked through it. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, I got these coupons. And he starts handing And I'm like, no, not coupons. So then I run over to aisle two. And right as I get to aisle two, the guy puts out the sign and goes, sorry, I'm going on break. I'm like, this is my nightmare. You gotta be kidding me because I don't like to wait. So when I hear God say at the proper time, I go, okay, that's, that's now, right? And what I found is that God rarely agrees with me. Sometimes God says, no, it's, you're gonna go through this for a year. You're gonna go through this for five years, 10 years. But at the proper time, you are gonna reap a harvest. Our family was watching the movie Evan Almighty recently, and if you remember that movie, uh, Steve Carell is the main actor, so it's, it's definitely a comedy. But in the movie, Evan, the main character, is a politician, and he's a workaholic. He keeps promising his kids he's going to take them camping, and then something at work comes up, and he cancels the camping trip, and his wife can see what this is doing. She can see her teenage sons just drifting away, the headphones on, video games, not engaging. They're losing their kids. And so she prays that their family would be closer together. And shortly afterwards, God, played by Morgan Freeman in the movie, he speaks to Evan and he says, I want you to build an ark. And of course, Evan, like, you're not gonna do that, but he won't let him get away with it. He almost forces him into it in a humorous way, and so Evan has to start building this ark, and he loses his job as a politician. News crews are covering it. He's the laughing stock of New York, and finally his wife goes, that's it. I quit. She takes the kids. She's going to her mom's house. She stops at a restaurant on the way, and Morgan Freeman's character, again, who plays God, is the one waiting on her. I don't agree with every theological point of this clip, okay? Just want to preface that. But the ending is really great. Take a look. Oh, excuse me. Can I get a refill, please? Coming right up. Excuse me. Are you all right? Yeah. No. It's a long story. Well, I like stories. I'm considered a bit of a storyteller myself. My husband... Have you heard of New York's Noah? <laughs> the guy who's building the ark. That's him. I love that story. Noah and the ark. You know, a lot of people miss the point of that story. They think it's about God's wrath and anger. They love it when God gets angry. What is the story about then, the ark? Well, I think it's a love story about believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in pairs. They stood by each other, side by side. Just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the ark side by side. But my husband says 
God told him to do it. What do you do with that? Sounds like an opportunity. Let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If they prayed for courage, does God give them courage? Or does he give them opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? If you needed to grow in patience, would God just kind of wave a wand and make you patient, or would he give you something to be patient about? If God wanted to strengthen your character, would he just make that happen? Or would he do something that tests your character in some way? And if you were to grow in endurance, you would need something to endure. Maybe today there's something in your life that you go, I just, I want to quit. Don't quit. Endure. You can handle you're now, you can handle whatever it is you're dealing with when you know what's next. Run with endurance the race that God has set before you. In fact, today as we close, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to pray in a way of kind of speaking God's truth over you. And I want you just to receive these words, hopefully, as being from God. And so if you would, at all of our campuses, let's just stand for one moment. And if you feel comfortable, just put your hands out. There's nothing magical about that, but it's just a way of saying, God, if there's something you want for me right now, if there's something you want to say to me, if there's something you want me to receive, God, I, I receive it. Let's pray. God, may we run with endurance. May we run and not grow tired or weary. But may you renew our strength and may we be able to soar on wings like eagles. God, if anyone here today is feeling like they want to quit, is feeling so tired and weary. God, right now, we just say, let us run with endurance the race that you have marked out for us. God, you have a race. May we run it. May we endure to the one who is able to do more than we ever ask or imagine. Would you fill us with your strength and with your endurance? And may we trust in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as you leave today, we're going to give you a card that has that verse.
written on it. Pick that up, put it someplace where you'll see it. Have a great weekend, everybody.